Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we review the new Broken Lizard theatrical comedy, Super Troopers 2, and take a look at the HBO sports documentary, Andre the Giant. We also have a brief discussion about documentaries and our Death of Cinema segment in between the two movies. And believe it or not, we got a little correspondence this week from a couple of fans that we wanted to give a shout out to. But before we get to that, we need to cover the news. Three stories this week, so hold on tight. First off... Steven Spielberg, the superhero film hater, may be producing and potentially directing a new DC superhero film. In an announcement from Warner Brothers this week, Spielberg and his studio Amblin will be partnering with them to take on Blackhawk, an adaptation of the World War II-centric comic book team. He's producing the film. He might be directing. We're really not sure yet. Andy, what can you bring to this? I think this is some well-deserved good news for DC. Um, the, I think they've been in real trouble w- with their directors. They haven't really found anyone other than Patty Jenkins to, to really make the properties work. Uh, so I think someone like Steven Spielberg could really make some good changes and um, kind of just bring this new property uh, to audiences in a way that's that's engaging and gets people excited about it. I don't really know anything about the Black Hawk property other than it deals with World War II uh, pilots. What's interesting about this to me is when you talk about a a World War II film uh, starring pilots, I think of Steven Spielberg's good buddy George Lucas and his production Red Tails, which I didn't see. And as far as I know, nobody else saw either because it didn't do all that well. It's interesting to me that Lucas did that and Spielberg's doing this because it didn't really work out that well for Lucas. And I know Spielberg has kind of gone back and forth uh, with him in a weird kind of film rivalry before. So I wonder if maybe there's anything to that. Like, well, Lucas tried to do it and he bombed. So I'm going to take it over and I'm going to do great. It's weird that, that Spielberg is talking about doing a superhero movie. I know, yeah, he's bashed it in the past. But at the same time, I'm hopeful because Spielberg's bashed things like Netflix, and and I hope maybe this will uh, bring him around to understand why it's been such a film movement and and why people pay to go see comic book movies, especially in light of The Avengers coming out. Um, For me, Steven uh, Spielberg is such an incredible storyteller. Like, he's brought us some incredible movies and, you know, both in just so many genres, in action and adventure and, you know movies aimed at kids or young adults and then much more adult or heavier themes, things like Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List. So he can really tell a compelling story. So I really hope he brings that uh, to this property. To be fair, before he gets to making Blackhawk, he does have to work on Indiana Jones 5, which is supposed to shoot next year, and a West Side Story remake, which, cool... I guess. Like, I don't know. Spielberg and West Side Story? Why not? Um, so they probably won't start working in this movie till at least 2020. So they're looking they're looking way ahead of the curve. And it is good, I guess, to see DC looking that far ahead. And I hope, yeah, like you said at the beginning, Spielberg will inject a little bit of, um, I was going to say class, I guess. A, little, <laughs> a, a, a new, fresh something into what DC's currently got cooking. Uh, The next story we had, an LA theater is debuting its first LED video wall in the US. Uh, Rather than use a traditional laser projector, a theater in Los Angeles, specifically the Pacific Theaters in Chatsworth, is opening a LED video wall. First one, a screen made entirely of LEDs. What do you think about this, Andy? 
So it's always nice to see advancements in the industry, and the screen and the projection isn't something that we kind of think of too much. There has been the big move from um, analog film to digital. That's been a big jump, but there's still plenty of theaters that use uh, traditional film. The cool thing is is that you can actually make the, the screen however big or small you want. The They're made of smaller panels that interlock, and apparently you can't r- tell uh, where the seams are. It's it's that good unless you're like a foot away from it. Um, so, I mean, I, th- I think it's really cool. I, I wonder, you know, I was thinking about this over the weekend. I wonder from like an editing standpoint or, you know, like what can you do on an LED screen that you couldn't do on a tr- traditional screen or what will it matter will it you just do the same thing you would have done you know it's funny i when you sent me this story earlier in the week i thought about it and i thought about projection and how studios may edit and color correct for a projected screen versus something that's uh on on like a television an led screen and it's weird because yeah I, i know a lot of film snobs will say that a projection is the best way to view a film but as far as like color correction and saturation, like actual perception of the film goes, that may not be true because you lose some fidelity when you're projecting an image across a large room onto a screen. Like you, you, you do lose a little something there and the image is relatively different from experience to experience, whether that be on a projected screen or on your television at home, maybe even your phone. So I do think you're going to get richer colors here. I know something addressed in the article is cost. Uh, a traditional projector costs like 150 to 300 grand. One of these screens is 300 to 500 grand. So that may up the price of tickets, which in America might <laughs> is, hurt is sales in, a little bit. It's definitely not what we need. Um, but I wonder if it if it'll offset the cost of say maintenance, and because I know like bulbs are really expensive, right, for for projectors when those go out. Right. I, I mean, I would think so, but at the same time, I also didn't know these were interlocking panels. So that's probably. Probably goes both ways, right? One of those panels goes out. That shuts down your whole your whole screen until you can get something else up. So I guess it's like a give and take. Either way, uh, if, if there was a theater like in my area that, that installed one of these and they said, oh, yeah, come see the new Avengers on it, I, I would probably pony up the extra couple bucks and check it out. Yeah, I'd be really interested interested to see what it looks like, what the difference is, if you could tell a difference, and what might be possible now to directors. I want, you know, just like special effects or editing or 3D or digital. We we keep kind of inventing new tools for directors to use. So I wonder if, if there's something that someone might come up with some new technique or some sort of editing or, you know, just because it's a different kind of medium. Right. One thing's for sure. I'm sure there will be uh, people at, at, at Cannes and other festivals who will say, well, that's not real cinema. Yeah, you the, can't watch it on an LED screen. That's, the, not, that's not how it's supposed to be. The purists and Luddites. That's right. Uh, and on the topic of custom screenings, that's a terrible segue. Uh, I want to go to our last story. Uh, on June 25th, 2022, a ways away from when we're recording this podcast, hardcore fans of the cult classic The Thing will gather at Frigid Outpost 31 to celebrate the film's 40th anniversary. All the way up in the Alaskan panhandle, Andy, people are going to get together to watch The Thing um, right around, not really where it was made, I guess, but kind of where the film is set. Uh, what do you think about this? Well, I think that's actually is where the film was, where they filmed it, Oh, wow. but, but it's supposed to take place in the South Pole. I think is the the setting. So you, you'd think I'd know that. I'm a big fan of the thing, but here here I am. So 
so it's pretty hard. I lay myself bare on this podcast. It's pretty hardcore. Um, I'm a big fan of you know, go making a drive or taking a plane to see some sort of unique uh, screening or viewing experience of some sort. So I, I think it's pretty cool. I think it's kind of it's one of those things going to be cooler to say you did than to actually do because it's going to be absolutely freezing there. I mean, it gets you know it's one of those places that gets like negative thirty or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, and they got bears and stuff, man. Like, who, <laughs> who needs that? You, you I might, can't. <laughs> you, might, you might literally live out the thing, and it'd be about who survives. Yeah, like, I struggle to, to sit in a theater with strangers. Like, imagine the people who are crazy enough to drive out there to watch the movie together. Like, it's going to be a horrible crowd. Who's going to want to put themselves through that? And it's funny, just reading the story makes me want to go back and watch the thing again, but... I, I'm a big fan of like retro screenings and I'm a big fan of like gimmicky screenings in the right setting. Of course, like I, I know, uh, it in, in, I'm in Dallas, of course, recording this, uh, recently they had a RoboCop screening out in front of the Dallas, uh, city hall, which was the police station in RoboCop. Uh, and now that, that was cool. I didn't go to that, but that would have been something rad to check out. I've always wanted to check out a, um, What's it called? It's like a screening on a lake. They set up a projector and you hang out in your inner tube and watch Jaws. Uh, I always thought that was like the coolest way to watch Jaws ever, like floating in a body of water at night. That seems just perfect. Um, never done it again, but would like to. What do you, what do you call those? It's like a float and something. Uh, I, don't know. I had, I had yeah. a name for it right before I started talking and I totally <laughs> lost my train of thought. I'm trying desperately to recover. So, uh, as far as driving out to uh, Alaska to, to, to do this, I, I, I obviously won't. But I do love the thing, and I respect people that like it too. Yeah, like, like I said, it, it's really pretty impressive uh, that people are going to go to this. And I, I'd love to like I'd love to see pictures. I'd love to see footage of people out there in the snow and ice and in their igloos or whatever what, um, watching, the, <laughs> watching the thing. Yeah. But I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll watch it from the comfort of my home. All we got to do is wait till 2022. One thing's one thing's interesting though. This comes out of the vintagenews.com. This isn't vintage. This is like 5 years ahead. I, I don't know if they were just out of I like didn't know what to write next and they were like, "Oh, we know the screening that's way out like 5 years from now. We'll write an article about that." It's definitely curious. Yeah, and I, I actually I didn't read the whole article because it was incredibly long. It's a long article. <laughs> yeah, it's no joke. And I, I got so. the gist of it after about, you know, the first 3 paragraphs or so. <laughs> The headline kind of says it all. Anyway, before we get to our first film of the evening, uh, we should talk about some correspondence we got from a couple of fans of the show, and I was really excited to read this. Uh, we got two things, so let's start with the first one. Uh, at should we say who they are on Insta on, on wherever they reached out to us? I guess we should, right? That doesn't... I think so. I think so. It's yeah, just it's I a handle. At Marion Lawrence said on Instagram of our promotion for our last episode featuring. Something in the Florida Project. God, what did we watch? The Florida Project. And? Um, wow, I have already blank. <laughs> Rampage. Rampage. <laughs> so you couldn't remember because it was so forgettable. Rampage in the Florida Project. Yes. Uh, at Marin Lawrence said, I don't like Florida. And I, <laughs> I, I, I suppose I'm inclined to agree. Deep thoughts. Yeah. It's just... <laughs> cuts me deep man no uh i guess i don't like florida either so thank you marion for your correspondence we appreciate it uh the other one we had was reagan in dallas this one's a little deeper i swear uh she said he said she said she said uh reagan said i'm gonna have to start listening to the podcast that episode was great 
I agree with your review, except I honestly never found myself checking my watch. Speaking of the Florida project and how we said it was a little slow at the beginning. I do know the beginning moved much slower than the hyper hyperspeed final act, but I was so charmed by the kids and their naivete that I felt thoroughly engaged throughout the whole film. I wonder how much of the kids' dialogue was scripted and how much was totally off-the-cuff legitimate rambling. Not once did I feel like I was watching kid actors or hearing scripted lines. All of the dialogue sounded so natural. I'll have to check out Tangerine now because I've never seen it. Andy, any thoughts on Mrs. Reagan's response? Um, yeah, well, I wondered the same thing. Uh, the way the kids act in the in the movie, how they interact, it's, it's very real. It's very authentic. And I, I wondered how they did that because it would be incredibly difficult to script that, to write out, because a lot of times they're, they're talking over each other or they're just kind of yelling and being nonsensical. So it would be very difficult to write that kind of dialogue. So... Yeah, I mean, I think it was probably improvised to a degree, and I just, I'm, I'm curious myself as, as how Sean Baker kind of set that up and achieved that. That is part of the charm of the Florida Project, maybe something we didn't underline enough in our review. Um, the way, yeah, the kids are written, because most child actors almost always can't, like, can't really tackle the script that's put in front of them. I mean, they're kids, like, they don't, you know, they don't really know any better. And so a lot of the times, especially in a movie like A Wrinkle in Time, you're putting a lot of weight on the plot and, and emotion of the film on a kid and hoping they can just kind of get it out the way you see it in their head. And usually they can't. It's, it's, it's a tough bar to reach. But the Florida Project kind of goes the other way. It kind of brings us down to the kids level. And a lot of their dialogue sounds so natural. Yeah, it sounds exactly how kids would talk. That yeah. it really does kind of lull you into this. Uh, I don't know. It helps suspend your disbelief, I guess. Yeah, it definitely helps you to come into the world of, you know, the the child view, just like the camera is is lower. You see everything from their point of view for most mm-hmm. of the film. And, and it again, it sounds, and I mean, most of their dialogue is nonsensical or, <clears throat> you know, it's just how kids, kids talk. Right. As far as Sean Baker's previous work, Tangerine, I too am going to have to check it out. Came out in 2015. I, th- I want to say it was nominated for an Academy Award or something. I know it was all shot on an iPhone, which is crazy. With a cool lens, to be fair, if you watch it and think, wow, this doesn't look like I was shot on an iPhone, they did have a real, like, really cool lens for it. But, um, yeah, I, I think Tangerine might be on my watch list. Have you seen it, Andy? Uh, no, but I think no. it is on Netflix. <laughs> oh, not, well, maybe we should check that out some week. Uh, after our correspondence, we should move on to our first film of the evening. Andy, you agreed to take the summary for this. You want to kick us off? Uh, yes, yeah, so... Our next movie is Super Troopers 2. Let's give a big Canadian welcome to the Vermont Highway Patrol. Come on, guys. They've come up here to tell us how great it's going to be for all of us to become Americans. Repeat after me. I pledge allegiance to the United States of America. So this follows the very long delayed sequel um, from the original Super Troopers, which came out way back in 2001. And a quick summary of that film, it basically deals with this, it's a screwball comedy that deals with these crazy uh, police um, station, highway highway patrol. Uh, They get into all these antics, they play pranks on each other, there's lots of sex jokes, drug jokes, um, you know, that kind of humor. Um, The plot doesn't really matter, it's mostly about these cops and their their crazy, you know their crazy antics and you know there's a small subplot about someone trying to move move drugs um anyway so someone someone 17 years later just decided it was a good idea to make a sequel 
And the sequel kind of, it pretty much picks up exactly where the other one leaves off. All the same characters um, have actually been recently fired from their job on the police force involving uh, an incident with Fred Savage. Um, But, you know, of course, they're just kind of asked to, we need you to come back to your jobs. There's this whole plot detail involving um, border disputes on the Canadian border where this Canadian town is actually going to be annexed into the U.S. And so the uh, the troopers are sent there to kind of help assimilate the people and the uh, the, Ma- the Mounties as well, Canadian police. Um, as you can imagine, this doesn't go over entirely uh, too well, um, but they kind of move out to this police station in the, in the woods and start kind of doing what they did in the first film, playing pranks on each other, getting into trouble, <laughs> lots of uh, comedic violence. Um, and that's basically the the setup. All right, real quick, before we get into a discussion about this, let's let's make our claim. This is a sequel. Uh, Andy, have you seen Super Troopers? Yes. All right, and have you seen any any other Broken Lizard's work? I have not. Okay. Uh, Broken Lizard also put together Club Dread, Beer Fest, and The Slam and Salmon. Those are the movies I'm most well known for. Um, not quite, not quite in that order. In that order, consequentially, but not. Super Troopers in there somewhere. Anyway, uh, what did you think of Super Troopers 2? Um, well, I've said this a number of times to some people. I feel like it's a 2000s era comedy stuck in 2018. It's like a, a it's like a bear that went to sleep and woke up 17 years <laughs> later in film form. Um, so I, ha- I have a lot of issues with it. I did laugh a number of times, you know, en- enough for it to be called a comedy. However, it's just very dated and antiquated style of comedic film. Uh, it, it reminds me a lot, a lot of those early 2000s comedies, things like uh, American Pie, Waiting is probably the most uh, kind of stereotypical one, Out Cold, uh, Road Trip. You know, it's, and all these comedies have this the same kind of thing in common. They're all kind of these screwball comedies with young, nameless actors who kind of just get into these ridiculous situations that aren't really believable, but they're a lot of fun. Uh, there's lots of, you know, injury humor, sex humor, drug humor, very, very thin plots. And they worked for a time, you know, in that kind of pre-modern internet era, I think. Um, but the, but they have not aged well. And this, the problem with Super Troopers 2 is it has those same kind, the, the exact same kind of humor from 18 years ago i think you're right um i I think super troopers 2 does this very it it approaches it kind of its former right super troopers 1 in this very like white gloves way which for me didn't didn't really work all that well part of the charm of all of those kind of goofy gross out early 2000s comedies uh including super troopers is they were almost like anti-comedy. It was almost like punk rock to music. Like, they kind of didn't care how it was supposed to be or how things were supposed to be set up. Their jokes were unabashedly uh, humorous. And oftentimes, it was, it was lots of harsh language or, or goofy physical gags that were very in-your-face and, and very much like, this is what we're doing. We're, we're, we're a group of guys out in the woods making a movie we don't care what you think, this is what we've got. It's come as we are. And that was Super Troopers 1. Super Troopers 2 tries to do that, 
but in a way that tries to appeal to like a mainstream audience and also pays tribute to what it used to be with a lot of like callback jokes yeah that i very rarely if ever laughed at and and, and yeah it, it's kind of like it had this this weird like what's the word i'm looking for uh um it was very cautious in its approach to humor, which is a mistake for what it's supposed to be. Like I felt like it would it would do something, and it would be almost like a like a shock. Like oh, isn't that, isn't that surprising? You've seen this in the movie. Like at one point, they flip over a, a a porta potty with a character in it, and all I could think was like Jackass 3D. I'm like, they did that and showed you what happens on the inside of the, the <laughs> and they did it for real. <laughs> and they did it for real. Yeah, you did it in this movie, and it was super fake. Like and it, it like I guess I was supposed to laugh at it, but it just kind of didn't. Didn't didn't quite make make the mark for me, and and I felt like that happened in a lot of times. I laughed a few times. I I think three or four times got it got a good actual laugh out of me, um, but a lot of times it kind of just fell flat. And that's a bummer considering um, you know what came before. Yeah, I well I wanted to kind of talk about some more of the positive things. Yeah, um, Brian Cox, who played the the chief in the in the first film, is back in the same role. And and strangely enough, all the characters look exactly the same despite being seventeen years older. Yeah, um, which is pretty incredible, actually. Uh, but Brian Cox is is really funny, uh, just because he's so serious and he has these like ridiculous lines, but he's just so over the top. You know, he's he brings the Shakespeare to this um, to this terrible <laughs> script. Right. Um, but but he he's uh, he's pretty wonderful. And I mean, there are some there are some good jokes, there are some good good gags, but there's. They're outweighed by a ton of really bad jokes and a really bad, lots of really bad gags. There's lots of kind of jokes at um, making fun of Canadians or at the Canada in general, and it's just it's not even that it's offensive or out of distaste. They're just not funny at all. Like there's all these things about them being French or like the Mounties speaking in like these ridiculous French accents that just doesn't right. work. And it's painful in a comedy like this because you know when you're supposed to laugh. That's when it hurts the most. Like when they, when you, when you have a whole little scene, like when they first go over the border to Canada, they have an exchange with, um, seem like an effeminate Canadian border guard who I guess was supposed to be gay. And the whole exchange, like start to finish, they, they, they pull up, they have this little scene with them and then they drive away. And I was like, I, I never laughed once in there. And you're supposed to, it's a comedy. Like you're supposed to laugh, but like, it just kind of doesn't happen. And it makes it more painful like it's like kind of cringeworthy at that point it's like wow that was five guys sitting in a car trying to get a laugh and like just nothing nothing worked in there totally fell flat and sometimes it does and and when it works it works but that's taking an awful lot of swings at the ball and missing a lot and and claiming at the end hey we hit it a few times come on that's pretty good like laughing three or four times in a comedy film is not exactly a, a victory you know um so that's that's painful to to address the plot little canadian heavy in a way it totally didn't need to be like the first movie they barely ever touched on canada they certainly never went into canada yeah um the really only mention you get of canada is because the guys are in vermont so you get a little bit like well north of the border that's it though uh this like an had an awful lot of canadian themed humor for some reason i don't know if that was just low-hanging fruit or why they thought that was a good idea but it really i don't know it really didn't work but it it also wasn't necessarily accurate canadian humor or or like because you can make a lot of good jokes about any country and there's a lot of good jokes to be made about canadians or their practices or whatever and it just didn't 
it didn't touch on it. It didn't really go after those kinds of things that are like stereotypically funny about our Northern neighbors. So it's, it was just a very strange choice. And then they didn't get, um, I mean, the actors that they, that play the, the Canadian police, the Mounties are the worst. Like they are the, they are just like the most unfunny. I, Will Sasso is in it and he's, you know, from mad TV. He's supposed to be hilarious yeah. and he's just completely wasted. No, they they had one good bit with them, but it wasn't particularly because like they had funny accents, their delivery. It was just clever writing in exchange about uh, Danny DeVito in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But even then, there's an awful lot of name dropping. They said It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia like eight times in one scene. I was like, why, why do they keep saying that? Because it's supposed to be funny when they say it in a Canadian accent and it kind of doesn't come across that way. But um, the way the characters bounce off each other, I, I think, was my kind of favorite thing about the writing because the jokes might fall flat but the way the characters interact kind of the five main guys in the broken lizard troop as well as the canadian mounties i i kind of enjoyed it i think i think their performances are heartfelt you can see the broken lizard guys are kind of excited to be back in the saddle like putting together another movie and like they gave genuine performances just the writing wasn't as like Crackerjack, as as I remember, I don't know. Like I went back and watched the original Super Troopers before watching two in preparation for it, and like there's so much subtle humor in in two or in the first one with this like biting dry wit. The way these these characters mess with each other, and this one like kind of went that way. They're, we're all good friends and we get along, and like I don't know, you you miss something there. Yeah, in the first one, you were definitely not sure how much they did or didn't like Farva, right. Like and in he, this one, yeah, <laughs> in this one, they're all kind of friends with them, and they they're, they roll their eyes like, "Oh, classic Farva." Like in the last one, like they tried to murder him a couple times. <laughs> yeah, like and and this one, like it's just oh, another Farva bit. Yeah, stupid Farva. Like it's I, I don't know. Um, and, and again, like I, I it was okay, I guess, but yeah, never really scratched that itch. I, I do want to talk about um, the kind of gross out physical humor and or uh, drug related humor in this movie because it's got a fair bit of each. Um, in both cases, again, kind of swinging a miss. Like, I mean, it was funny, I guess. Um, there's, I mean, there's one part featuring pretty, 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 pretty stark male nudity. And I guess there was supposed to be a shock laugh and like totally fell flat for me. I was just like, okay, that's, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, what, what, did you get that at all? Were you laughing? I, I... I mean, my, so my theater was like erupting most of the time. This is <laughs> the other thing we were going to talk about is yeah, th- like, this is not a good comedy. It's not a well-made movie, but I mean, there were lots of people laughing through like throughout the whole thing in my screening. Yeah. Mine uh, was the same way. Lots of laughs. And, and, you know, in the first movie, there is a lot of, like, sex-based and nudity-based humor. And it really works. And it's not that it's shocking, but it's just the setup and the execution is, is done so well. But in, in this, it's, it, again, it's trying too hard to be shocking. And it's just, it's not shocking and it's not funny. Right. And it's, <clears throat> sorry, it's self-reflexive, too, which is weird. They'll, they'll, they'll talk about in the movie oh, well, we just do this because we're bored and we're playing pranks on each other. And hey, remember this bit from the last movie? And like that stuff totally didn't fly. The first movie didn't have any of that. It didn't have to be apologetic. It didn't have to explain itself. It was just, hey, there's this group of guys who are state troopers and mess with each other. Like that was the setup. This one, like 
they have to tell you they have to they have to like set up the joke for you first and that's a little exhaustive and and it kind of you lose some steam that you that you would have built up from kind of the surprise or maybe shock and awe of a joke previous um so that was weird and yeah i did think my audience laughed a lot <laughs> it's just like rampage it was just like oh really come on this is what we're this is what's funny okay that's funny i guess um, I don't know what that says about us in this podcast, but uh, if you if you particularly enjoyed Super Troopers 2, if you think we're full of it, write <laughs> us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com and let us know or just like reply on Instagram or something. We'll read that on the show. Um, <laughs> Mr. Lawrence got to the bottom of us uh, that way. And um, before we move on to our guests, our next discussion, I guess, Andy, what did you w- uh, would you recommend Super Troopers 2? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, maybe if you're like a diehard Super Troopers fan and you just want to see the next thing. I mean, the, I commented on a, on a film board saying my original comment that it's it's a it's a 2000s comedy stuck in 2018, and I got like destroyed by all these people who <laughs> who loved it and were like, "Well, that's I liked it because it was that. I liked it because it wasn't like yeah, like because it was like those old comedies and not like new, newer stuff." So, I mean. Yeah, I mean, there's people out there that that enjoyed it, but I I definitely didn't. I definitely didn't, and it also has a, two things I wanted to t- touch on before we move on. Yeah, anytime the plot advances, ba- nothing you don't ever see it. You just have people stand around and talk about the next thing that has to happen. It's true. You know, there's a group standing around saying, "Oh, look, we found some drugs and and contraband. We have to find out who is behind this." But who could it be? Why are they doing this? And then they and that happens like three or four times of just characters yeah. standing around and like the exposition of what comes next. Um, and then the other thing is a pretty distinct lack of women and kind of diversity in in the movie. Like Broken Lizard, the cops, it's like five or six guys. The Mounties are all guys. Um, the one woman from the first one, uh, one of the cops' girlfriends, she's in it for two scenes. Oh, they had her out for one day of shooting. Like you, that that scene, and then the other scene she's in, she's on a phone out yeah. in the woods. So I'm like, yeah, that was just one day. You had her come out and do the one day of filming. Then okay, stand by these trees. We're gonna film a thing. That was it. She's barely in the movie. Right, and then the, then the other um, kind of female lead, or not even really a lead, is she's like the Canadian minister of whatever. Um, and she shows up and is just kind of a love interest and kind of femme fatale. Yeah, awful lot of dudes in this movie. Again, I know the main comedy troupe is like five guys, but um, awful lot of dudes in this movie. And I, I, the first thing I think to compare it to is is a movie like Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping, or or, yeah. or even Hot Rod. Like I get it, Lonely Island is primarily dudes. Like, uh, and that's kind of who the movie's built around. But even still, and I guess those movies kind of had the same problem. So I don't know if that's just something you give a movie like this a pass on or what. But it just felt a little short sighted in 2018. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's another way that it's stuck in the 2000s for sure. I had another point I wanted to make about it, but I think we spent enough time on it. Maybe I'll come back to it later. Uh, as far as recommendations go for me. Uh, I man, I love Broken Lizard. I loved Super Troopers. I loved Beer Fest. Slam and Salmon was okay. Even me, like a like a, a, a Broken Lizard fan, uh, I, I'd say wait for it to come to like Netflix. Don't don't bother. And that and that hurts because yeah, these guys may not make another movie after this one. If this one does well, maybe we'll get a Beer Fest too, or maybe we'll get something else original from them. But I can't in good conscience tell you, yeah, go ahead, spend $11 like to see this movie alone, assuming you don't see it with anybody else. Like it's, 
it's just it just doesn't quite make the bar. Uh, and, and if you you know if you wait and you catch it on Netflix and it's hilarious and you think we're wrong, um, great. Well, you got to enjoy a new movie for for less than it would have cost. Uh, email us and let us know that's a problem. But uh, with that behind us, I think let's move on to our death of cinema discussion. Oh, wait, that was a terrible intro. Let me let me take another swing at that. Uh, our discussion: the death of cinema. And today's discussion is about something we haven't really talked about before, but we're about to get into, and we figured this would be a good kind of preface for talking about the Andre the Giant documentary. Uh, documentaries, just in general. It's hard to believe we're, this, is 19, this is 19 episodes into making a podcast, and we haven't really talked about documentaries at all. Andy, are you a big documentary fan? Yeah, I, I definitely am. When I find something, a subject that's really compelling or just find something that I don't know about, you know, I'll, I always want to learn something really interesting from a documentary. I wasn't initially. I was never really into documentaries. I was more about kind of creative fiction and film and, and you know, creating a universe and telling a story through like your own, you know, your own, your own paint colors, I guess. Uh, and I went to film school at, at, at good old university of north texas and i met some people who were into documentaries that was it they're like oh, i came to film school to learn documentaries and i was like what a loser like documentaries <laughs> who cares and yeah after a couple of years at, at school and like you know trying to kind of broaden my horizons and learn more about film I, I ended up watching more than a few documentaries and i man i totally fell in love with the genre like i i wouldn't have thought creative nonfiction would be as intriguing as it is, but like telling a story in a documentary is totally different from telling a story in a fiction film, um, but just as engaging. And I think a good place to start this conversation is with documentaries we like. But before we get there, we, we're only going to talk about this for probably five or ten minutes. What are we aiming to accomplish here? Why should people keep listening to our discussion about documentaries? <laughs> How are you going to put me on the spot like that? I know. Yeah, I'm just going to put you right. Okay. Yeah, well, here, well, you might, well, I'll, I'll pick that up. Uh, I think what we're aiming to do is just enlighten some people. Maybe maybe some of us who, who, who don't really know where they stand on documentaries, maybe recommend a couple things you might like and let you guys know how we feel about them. If we didn't just do that two seconds ago uh, to kind of give you some insight into where we stand on them. We haven't talked about them yet. And give us a little bit of a, uh, a launch pad into Andre the Giant. Um, Andy... You put a couple documentaries down that you wanted to talk about. Uh, I haven't seen either of them, so I'm curious. Uh, go ahead. What are you? What are your uh, your picks here? Okay, so uh, one of the documentaries that, that really has really stuck with me for a long time uh, is called Into the Abyss. Uh, it's by Werner Herzog, who's well known documentarian as well as he he's made lots of fiction films as well. Um, this story takes place in Huntsville, Texas and involves uh, two men on death row. Well, one on death row and one uh, serving life in prison uh, for the same crime. Uh, these two men, uh, they stole someone's car, but they didn't just steal someone's car. They went to someone's house. They murdered the person there. They waited for that person's chil like adult children to come home, murdered them. So they murdered three people for a car, which is like a fire red Camaro or something. Um they were caught about a week later um, because when you do something like that, you're they they end up bragging about it, and you know they big shootout with cops. They get caught. 
one gets they they were actually both gonna be put on death row um but one of one of the inmates uh, his father who was actually serving life came and pleaded for his son's life um and the, the, you know the jury gave him life instead and so it's an intimate look at the penal system of capital punishment of the causes of crimes because uh the two the two men come from uh this backwoods uh conroe texas where in you know lots of rural poverty um and it's just it's it's really heartbreaking you you have interviews with both of the both of the men and uh one of them uh, the one on death row he you have interviews uh, I mean, the documentary takes place before and after his uh, his execution. Um, so he interviews, you know, the family on both sides, the the actual executioners or whatever they're they're called these days. Um, so it's it's some it's some heavy stuff, and that's I think that's one thing I like about documentaries is that you can touch on some real world um, issues and really delve deep. Because I mean, when when they're uh, even when he when he interviews people like the investigators i mean they're they're incredibly distraught at one point one of the detectives you know they have the car that the the two men stole it's you know impounded in a line it's just it's sat there for three years and it's just rotting away uh and he's like you know three people died over this thing and he it's just like he's incredibly just kind of like heartbroken over the whole situation I think it's a good place to start, um, not only because I actually grew up not far from Conroe, Texas, and had a bunny buddy that worked in a Huntsville State Pen for a while. Uh, I think it's a good place to start because documentaries can do such a brilliant job of taking a story that is real, right? Not one that's fiction that's made up, taking an actual real-life thing and kind of presenting it in the same on the same stage as like theater, as fiction, Um and it can help us kind of feel pulled away from a situation and sit back and be the audience, but also can help us feel like we're involved because it's real, because that's something that happened not far from where you grew up, in my case, or, or maybe to people who are a similar age as you. Like there's, there's something to how a documentary can kind of bring the abstract into reality in a way that I think traditional films can't. So that's right. a solid pick. And Werner Herzog is a fantastic documentarian. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I've dr- driven that stretch, stretch of road between Dallas and Houston uh, thousands of times. And yeah, I've driven by the state pen. And, you know, I know exactly where that is. So it, it's really, you know, it's crazy to, to see those places and to see the footage and to realize that's happening right there. And And what I love that Herzog does is that he doesn't, he's not looking to condemn the death penalty. What he he wants everyone to do is he just sits back and asks the question like what good does this really do right and did it uh just out of curiosity did it change your opinion of uh the, the the big death penalty um i don't think it itself did i mean i've already from what i've researched it's, it's yeah i mean i've never really been a big um I've never been for the death penalty to be be quite honest. So it's yeah, it, it didn't really change my my view. It's one I already had. But it's it's like I said, it's pretty heartbreaking to to look and to see the interviews with with the two men and their parents and their families and and see how how many lives can be destroyed because of you know poverty and crime. It's funny, my first documentary pick here, and we've got five total, so if you're rolling your eyes like, oh God, now we're going to get through this. I swear, they're pretty good. Hear me out. My first documentary pick is actually very similar to yours. It's called The Thin Blue Line, uh, an Academy Award-winning documentary by uh, Errol Morris, a brilliant 
brilliant director. If you haven't seen any of his stuff, I'd highly encourage it. He uh, tells the story of a Dallas police officer who's gunned down in the street in the 70s. Dallas, not far from Houston. Um, and what's unique about The Thin Blue Line, it was one of the first documentaries to create a reenactment, to reenact uh, something that happened for film and kind of present it in a cinematic way, uh, kind of producing fiction from fact. Um, and using a director's skills to tell a story to recreate a situation that happened in la- in lieu of like actual footage, right? He couldn't go back and film what happened in the 70s, but he could film a recreation of it. It was one of the first to do it, and it's really well done. Um, it's got an incredible score to accompany it, and, and it's really cool. He had the opportunity to sit down with some of the survivors of the incident, some of the family of the cop, but also the investigators and the man accused of doing it, who's on pretty sure death row at the time. And he does a really clever job of presenting uh, this man who, who committed this crime in kind of an, uh, kind of a, a, a nice way. Uh, he hasn't, he hasn't in prison. Of course he's interviewing him, but he films him from like almost the neck up or chest up. So you don't really get a good look at, look at him and you kind of forget over the course of the movie, like, well, maybe this guy didn't really do this. And then towards the end, he does this really clever trick where the man uh, raises his hands to scratch his nose and he's in handcuffs. And it's like this brilliant visual turn to kind of indicate the third act of the documentary uh, and and let you know, hey, um, this guy's still bad, like still committed this crime, even though we've kind of humanized him uh, for this documentary, like he's still a bad dude and you don't know him as well as you would think. It's a really clever kind of trick of storytelling. Um, and I really enjoyed it. So yeah, that, that's that's my next pick. Yeah, and I think that one's on Netflix actually. I think it is. Yeah. Um, so worth checking out. And if you like Errol Morris, I think his other one. Well, he's got a few a few others, but one of his more recent films, Tabloid, is on Netflix, and uh, his new series Wormwood is on Netflix. That that just came out recently, I think, starring Peter Sarsgaard. You had another one though. Uh, what's what's your next one? Uh, this one's called uh, Let the Fire Burn. And this came out in 2013. It was directed uh, by a man named Jason Osder, who's only done a couple of films. Um, And this involves uh, this conflict in Philadelphia in 1985 between the local police and this this kind of black liberation movement, um, which resulted in several very violent uh, clashes where both members of the police and this movement uh, died. And it all culminated in in this kind of siege where uh, the people, uh, this was essentially a cult and uh, there were children involved in the, in living in this building and they'd essentially taken, taken over this apartment complex and there were lots of complaints filed. The city eventually tried to move them out and they refused to go. And so then what eventually happened was this huge conflict between them and the police. And at some point in the what which is essentially a siege, uh, the building caught fire, and no one put it out, and so twelve people died in this um, fire. And so the, the documentary itself is is brilliant because it deals with all. Most of the footage is actually of hearings after the incident. Um, there's lots of news footage and things of the incident and before, but there's also lots of hearings that kind of uh, interview different. Uh, political officials uh, like fire chief, police chief, these kinds of people that were there and involved. And it, you know, they're being interrogated, investigated in these public hearings to try to see uh, what happened. And it's, you know, it's a very kind of stark look at, you know, race relations and 
it's just, it's an incredible look at a lot of different things. There's lots of different angles. You know, there's issues of, you know, brainwashing and kind of this uh, religious fanaticism as well as, you know, racial issues and wealth and poverty. Um, It's, it's really fascinating. And uh, the, the footage is, is incredible as well. And this, this was on Netflix. I don't think it's on Netflix currently, but it it was um, uh, back when it uh, came out. Yeah, you you totally asked one of my follow up questions. Can you can I find this on a streaming service? Um, documentaries, I think, can so often raise questions in, in ideology, even even your own beliefs. Um, just like the last one, I'm curious. Do you feel any differently about anything after watching Let the Fire Burn? I think one of the things I think about is you know you had local police kind of uh, I mean something like eighty officers kind of storm this building and it's. It's the kind of thing, if that were to happen today, well, I mean, it, it did in, in a way with like the, the Waco incident um, with that standoff, you know, you then actually had to bring like the full military or like paramilitary people. And so to me, it, w- it was kind of insane to have just your local Joe Blow cop have to essentially do counterterrorism work in like the local city. Like we would, we would handle that situation completely different now from what they did in 1985. Yeah, well, <laughs> documentaries certainly do kind of have a knack for capturing a time and a place, you know? It's one of the things I really enjoy about them. Speaking of, uh, I want to talk about my next pick, uh, Exit Through the Gift Shop. It's a 2010 British documentary film by a street artist, Banksy, and it's kind of interesting. The movie starts out talking about uh, Terry Guetta, I think is his name, a French immigrant in Los Angeles. Uh, who kind of follows Shepard Ferry around, another street artist, uh, to kind of learn more about it and document him. Then somewhere along the way, uh, it kind of takes a turn, and suddenly you're watching Banksy, the the British uh, anonymous graffiti artist, follow uh, Terry around as his new kind of surname, Mr. Brainwash. What's interesting about Exit Through the Gift Shop is it does a really incredible job of taking this inside look at street art and asks the question whether or not street art is is art or graffiti, whether or not it's something that should be preserved or something that should be forgotten, whether or not it's vandalism or a statement towards something bigger. Um, What's interesting about this documentary in particular is it's been questioned since it came out whether or not it's a genuine documentary or a mockumentary. Banksy is known for his kind of uh, caustic approach to art and how it's perceived in the world. And people have asked whether or not this is a real documentary or whether it's fake and and another, uh, quote, work of art by the man himself. Nobody really knows, I think. Uh, nobody, Nobody knows whether or not it's real or fake. But I think that's kind of one of the things that makes me enjoy it so much. I know in Roger Ebert's review, who gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars, he said the same thing. Like, wondering whether or not it's real is part of the charm. It's part of the part of the show. Um and few documentaries, I think, are presented in that way, uh, which is part of the reason why I love it so much. Have you ever seen it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I definitely have. Um, yeah, it's a really in- incredible look at, at street art. But y- yeah, you have this weird thing where uh, Mr. Brainwash is following Banksy around to learn about you know how to become a street artist, and then he kind of, sort of steals some of his techni- his techniques, and he kind of gets big overnight. And I know lots of street artists are really kind of. They're perturbed because they've put in, like, years of work of, like, you know, clandestine uh, street art, and this guy's kind of just blown up overnight, kind of on on accident. Um, but, th- but there are some really incredible scenes. I know that there's, uh, I mean, 
Banksy is he's he's put a piece on the giant wall that separates Israel and Palestine, which mm-hmm. I mean like which I I think he did that because he was like they was like the most dangerous and most off limits <laughs> place to try and and yeah. ta- and tag up and 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 he did and he, and that was you know to make very strong political statements and there was another one where he he puts like the lot or like the blow up doll in like a orange jumpsuit in the uh, like the Disney World right the Guantanamo at, yeah uh, Bay Detainee yeah yeah you know so there's there's some real powerful. Uh, statements he makes but there's also just like the love of of that kind of art artistry as well right and that's the other thing i think i really get from this documentary is is drawing attention towards and appreciating uh an art form that maybe a lot don't understand um and doing it in such an efficient way um by somebody who is such a big figure in the medium um it's really fascinating it's a really an incredible piece of work, and I, I uh, don't have enough good things to say about it. Our last documentary, um, I'm actually going to kind of skip, believe it or not, because I really want to get to talking about our next documentary, uh, but it is uh, The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. We talked about it last week in regards to Billy Mitchell and Steve Wiebe. Um, head back to episode 18 if you want to hear our conversation there. Uh, this is a modern documentary, just came out just a few years ago about uh, two men competing for the worldwide Donkey Kong high score on the original arcade cabinet, Donkey Kong. Um, what's interesting about this is, yeah, how the documentary was presented versus what happened now. Back when it came out, uh, Billy Mitchell held on to his longtime record as the king of Kong. Steve Wiebe tried and failed to best him. But as of last week, there's a story out that Billy Mitchell is a cheater. All his records have been stripped. <laughs> And Steve Wiebe is the the once and future king of Kong. What's interesting here is how a documentary can capture a reality, even for a little while, right? And and can't be, I mean, it could be changed after fact. You could George, go back and George Lucas your way through a movie. But uh, that, that, that documentary represents something in time. It, it was this little individual piece of reality just carved out and, and kind of preserved in amber like a mosquito in jurassic park um and regardless of how we view the world now it doesn't really change what the documentary was um you can go back and watch it since and feel differently and go man (laughs) they sure thought they had it one way but like there's a certain innocence to that it's something i appreciate in documentaries and you don't i don't think you quite get in traditional fiction films so any any afterthoughts on documentaries before we move on andy I mean, I think j- just that uh, you know, hopefully people are open to seeing them because I know they're they're not incredibly popular, but they can be uh, really enlightening. And at the same time, you, I think it's it's good to approach them with a degree of, of skepticism because there's definitely lots of sensational documentaries out there or things that v- have you know clear agendas that, that they really want to change your your mind about. To briefly recap before we move on, uh, the documentaries we discussed are Into the Abyss, The Thin Blue Line, Let the Fire Burn, Exit Through the Gift Shop, and The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. They are some solid picks. I would highly recommend them. Find them on streaming services if you can. Uh, Keep an eye out and let us know if you have any favorite documentaries at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. How many times do I plug the email so far? (laughs) Like three? So I'll move on. Uh, Our other film of the evening is the HBO sports documentary, Andre the Giant. The cliche of gentle giant is Andre. That's what he was. He had this wonderful sense of humor about himself. Andre's having a good time. But he had a sadness too. Yes, Andre the Giant, a documentary examining the life and career 
of one of the most beloved legends in WWE history. This ambitious, wide-ranging film explores Andre's upbringing in France, his celebrated WWE career, and his forays into the entertainment world by diving into the mythology behind the man to ask and answer the question of whether or not Andre truly was the giant society made him out to be. It includes interviews with Vince McMahon, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Billy Crystal, Rob Reiner, family members, and more. It is available on HBO Go, HBO Now, or just HBO in general. It's 87 minutes, I want to say. Uh, and personally, I was really a fan. I, I think this documentary did a really clever job of teaching me a lot about a guy I didn't really understand, but had always seen from afar. I wasn't a big WWE few, viewer back in the day, but I did watch The Princess Bride, <laughs> and I had seen him on like you know WWE trading cards and stuff. Um, I never really watched WrestleMania three, which is kind of where this film finds its climax. But I knew a little bit about Andre the Giant. But this movie does such a great job of not only putting him on a pedestal, but presenting him on the pedestal society put him on as this kind of mythical character, a, a Goliath to the world, somebody who was misunderstood, um, but very much in the public spotlight. And they did this really clever way of presenting him and at the very beginning of the movie and the end you get kind of these bookends by his family and people that knew him really personally but other than that it's almost strictly professional you 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 get kind of you learn more about andre the giant from people who worked alongside him but didn't live with him didn't really know him they just knew of him you know they worked with him but like they they didn't they they weren't like in his posse per se and that was really cool because even the people around him looked up to him no pun intended um <laughs> and and like they never they never pull andre off of that mountain right they never they never say oh well he was totally just a normal dude like they still present him as kind of this mythical individual and that was a really clever way of of kind of drawing him um in this light that everybody respects him in um andy what did you think of andre the giant um, I really liked it. it. I thought it was really heartwarming. Um, he definitely, I mean, he, he is the embodiment of the gentle giant. I mean, he is, he was seven foot four, almost 500 pounds. I mean, there aren't people like that today. Um, so he was this incredible figure, but he was so, I mean, he seemed so nice. Um, I mean, everyone spoke about him so positively and, you know, he, he always wanted to play the hero and, and be the hero. You know, he wasn't a jerk. He wasn't like a bat a bad guy or, you know, he never wanted to play the heel and through the wrestling career. Um, but I mean, you get to learn so much about him, but his personal life, how he was, um, as a celebrity and, um, his contributions to wrestling as a whole. And I'm not, a, I'm not a wrestling fan. I'm not a big sports fan either. And this documentary r really reeled me in and I was really interested in, in everything that was going on. I also thought it was interesting uh, that it goes into kind of the the development and evolution of wrestling itself, how it went from this kind of, you know, unstructured, uh, as many as 30 wrestling companies that were very regional throughout the United States, and, and then how with the advent of cable television, it becomes this huge kind of con conglomerate uh, through big stars like Andre the Giant and Hulk Hogan and, uh, of course, uh, Vince McMahon. I thought it was really good, really brilliant. And it's and it's also, you know, it's it's sad because he he was a person who this world was not built for. 
you know, because of his, his size, he was in a lot of pain. A lot of times, you know, people over a certain height, like you're going to have lots of physical issues um, with things just like blood flow and aches and joint pain and back pain. Um, you know, there's, there's a big, uh, there's a section about his legendary drinking and they talk about just these unbelievable amounts that, that he would drink. But he, he wasn't just drinking out of fun. He was drinking to numb the pain of, you know, being 7'4". Right. I I think you made a couple of really good points there, and I want to make sure I get to both of them. First, uh, the rise of sports entertainment and wrestling, because Andre kind of came in when that was really starting to take off in the U.S., and right as cable television became a thing, and Vince McMahon up in New York started to kind of take over empires and grow his own, Andre was an integral part of that. He was one of the key players. I mean, he handed the reins off to, to Hulk Hogan, who handed them off to whoever made wrestling the next big thing, uh, because I wasn't really a fan either, to be honest. But... Um, this documentary does a really clever job of bringing that out for people who don't know. They don't make you feel stupid. Even though it's an HBO sports documentary and put together by the guys, uh, Bill Simmons specifically, who produced 30 for 30 for ESPN, they, they really do present it in a way that's like welcoming and it's not too strained. You're, you're not making really big leaps or anything. They give you just the right amount of information for you to understand what's going on and kind of how the landscape got to where it is today and how Andre the Giant helped shape that and was shaped by it. And as far as being shaped by the world is concerned, yeah, they do a really good job of explaining how Andre was limited by the world around him. How the guy would have to buy two airplane seats because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't he couldn't sit in an airplane, or how he couldn't even fit in an airport bathroom or airplane bathroom, or how yeah he drank incredible amounts to try to have the rest of the world keep up with him. I mean, it's 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 kind of nuts, really, and 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 sad from a guy who, at least as far as I could tell, in like the Princess Bride, just seemed like a really endearing individual. It's 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 a bummer to to find out that not only was he completely that way, but he was weighed down by everything he was. Um, life's a double-edged sword that way, I guess. Yeah, uh, Vince McMahon actually has, a, I think, a very kind of moving line when, when he says that uh, Andre the Giant's thinking about retiring, and he said, you know, when I'm retired, I'm done. And he took that to mean that he was going to be done with wrestling and I'm going to go die after this because he could tell like just the strain and pain on his body he just wasn't gonna keep be able to keep up with it right and he got a few more years to be fair like that it's after that they they, they do wrestlemania 3 which for anybody who doesn't know i i'd almost hate to spoil it if you haven't seen it um check out the documentary they do a really good job of kind of explaining what that is and the stakes and why it matters to people and not only explaining why Andre the Giant was important, but why wrestling is important to people. Like it's 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 a really clever kind of duality of a story that that goes together really well for this documentary. And and the ending is so much harsher and sweeter, I guess, for it. Man, that the the ending to this because I didn't know what happened to Andre the Giant. I didn't I didn't know kind of how that all panned out. And like it really is a heavy hitting um, finale, I guess. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you, I mean, you can see it a mile away. You know it's coming. I mean, they, they discuss that, um, you know, the reason he was so big is he had a, it was a, you know, physical problem, hormone imbalance that where his body was essentially just growing constantly. Like he never stopped growing. Um, and at, when he, when he finally found out that that was the case, he, 
he kind of he refused treatment because he was af- he was afraid that it would affect his performance in the ring or that he wouldn't be as big or as strong um, if he you know like, took medications or you know took treatment to kind of stop this uh, hormone hormonal growth. He seemed to have this angle kind of like this is the way God made me. I think they dropped that line a couple times in there, and he's just kind of this. I don't want to say devil may care attitude, but he looked at it as like he had been blessed with these gifts. Like this is the way he should be. You know, he shouldn't try to be something he's not. And I, I think there's, there's something to that. It's heartwarming. I think, uh, especially for those of us who are relatively normal sized. Um, <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I don't think I have much more to say about it without giving too much more away. Do you have any, any final thoughts? Um, Kind of the last thing I wanted to touch on is, you know, you get interviews with famous people, you know, Schwarzenegger, Hulk Hogan, Vince McMahon, and then normal everyday people, his, uh, his trainer, his handler, his, you know, people, uh, the, on the logistics side of the wrestling world, people that no one, no one knows about. And they're all equal in, in the eyes of the documentary. Like the way they speak is so kind of heart, heartwarming and, and authentic, um, you know, at one point, you know, Hulk Hogan is like, he's like, you know, wrestling is a tough guy's sport. It's a a tough guy's thing. And he was like, and he was bigger, he was bigger than all of us and stronger than all of us. And he was like, still the nicest guy you ever met. And that's a really kind of incredible uh, statement. Right. And I do want to underline the, uh, the the physicality of of, of Mr. Andre. Um, They do explain very clearly, like, yeah, wrestling is you know, most mostly an act that's choreographed. But when it came to Andre the Giant, like he really could beat the hell out of you. Like they they didn't mess around. Like he's throwing big guys around the ring. If he if he wanted to mess <laughs> you up, he'd mess you up. I mean, that was that was no joke. And I I think uh, I don't know. I guess I think that's important. It makes it more real somehow. But I just I love the way they keep lines blurred. You know, it, you know that story when he drank 150 beers. Did he actually do that? Nobody knows. You know, or <laughs> was he really seven four? Nobody really knows for sure. It could have been seven three. It could have been seven five. You know, like I, I love the way they kind of blur that mythology and don't really just tell you outright. They don't really hit you with the facts. They they keep him up on that kind of mystical ledge right next to Paul Bunyan and and <laughs> David and Goliath and any, anybody else who's big in their yeah. life. So, uh, Andy, would you recommend Andre the Giant? absolutely i would as well again both not wrestling fans both loved it 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 is it is worth your time i think it's available on hbo check it out i think you'll enjoy it yeah it's 87 minutes not even that long it's a good it's good quick watch something to do i think and it kept me hooked oh then one other thing i wanted to mention um and i don't maybe i just haven't noticed in the documentaries there was music constantly constantly music in the in this documentary i think i couldn't think of any moment in which there wasn't music running under it there's constantly some kind of track and i don't know if that was to keep things moving or what but i thought that was an interesting choice and i don't think i've noticed that in other documentaries usually i catch silence somewhere but this one i i feel like it was just going constantly did you notice that um no you know i can't really recall honestly Mm. it's not it's not really a nitpicky thing it wasn't necessarily bad it was just an interesting choice as all so keep an ear out for that and if you have any thoughts about andre the giant or super troopers 2 or any of our documentaries or any of our news or any of our show let us know at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com you can also find our website offscriptfilmreview.com follow us on facebook follow us on instagram follow us on twitter we're on twitter believe it or not uh and get involved with the show we want to hear what you have to say andy we've got two movies to talk about next week uh what are they uh hype train hype train i know we need some <laughs> kind of sounder or something we really do 
Avengers Infinity like, War. <laughs> Avengers Infinity War Part One. The hype is here. The hype is here. Yes, Avengers Infinity War Part One. You're very excited. I'm relatively excited. I'm sure it'll be good. I think it'll be good. I guess we'll just have to wait and see, though. Uh, and the other movie we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, The Big Sick, which is a 2017 comedy that's uh, just been added to Amazon Prime. Yeah. Uh, heard a lot of good things. Heard, I think it may have it may have actually gotten some some Oscar recognition, uh, I think maybe for writing or something. Yeah, um, a, a, a nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Yeah. So we're going to be taking a look, look at that as well. Real quick, uh, I want to I call our shot. It's not a spoiler because we haven't seen it. Curious. Are you getting to the heroes die in Avengers Infinity War? Oh, absolutely. I hope so. Come on. Let's get, let's get some blood on the sword, man. Let's make it happen. <laughs> we're, we're, lo- we're losing Captain America or Iron Man. All right. One or the other. That's a big, that's a big ask. Yeah. You have a preference? Um, I, I feel like the captain would be more heroic. He'd, he'd have very heroic death. Yeah. I, 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 I feel like it's going to be Captain America if only because I know Chris Evans is sick of making those movies. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I don't know. Anything could happen. Hopefully something happens. Hopefully it's more than the stupid vision because we know for the Infinity Gauntlet, that's got to be a thing, right? I mean, that's... Yeah. I don't know enough about it to really understand it. But yes, Avengers Infinity War next week. It's going to be nuts. Check out the episode, The Big Sick. It's available on streaming. Watch it with us. Collect your thoughts and let us know what you think at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. For Offscript, episode 19, the home of bold cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for listening.